Well, good morning, Life Church. Yeah, you can participate. That'd be great. I appreciate any feedback you want to offer throughout the course of the morning. Uh, it's good to see you. Good to be with you this morning. Um, just to be clear, uh, we're not here today because we want to just check something off of our religious to-do list. We're not here today because we're hoping that by being here, the good Lord will look upon us and favor us or delight in us or approve in us in some additional way. We're not here today so that he'll answer our prayers tomorrow. We're here today because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is worthy of our worship because our triune God has reached into our brokenness and our sin and rescued us out of that. We're here today because the right response to his glory and his grace and his goodness is to sing of that glory and grace and goodness, to gather with his people, to pray to him and to hear from his word. We're here today because God is glorious. And the best way we can respond to his glory is by doing this. And so we're not here because we want to get something from God. We're here because of everything that God has already given to us. And I just want to tell you it's right to be here in light of those things. And I'm so delighted that I get to be a part of that today, that I get to be with you. Yeah, so as Brittany said, my name is James Sharp. And beginning in January, it'll be my joy and privilege to serve here at Life Church as the pastor of teaching and vision. And man, I, I've got to tell you, I can't wait for that to be here. I don't know if you're ready for January, but I absolutely am. Um, this week, I'm here on my own uh, without my wife, Kristen, or without any of our four kids. Uh, they're still back in Lincoln, Nebraska, um, the place that is about to be our old home as we're preparing to make the transition here. But I'm excited to be here today. And I'll be back again next Sunday opening the word with you, and uh, that's just a joy. So we're really excited about the opportunity to make Salisbury our home, excited for Life Church to be our family. Um, and friends, I can't wait for the opportunity that we have to serve with you and among you as together we get to put on display to the watching world the beauty and goodness and glory of Jesus Christ. And so, man, I'm excited even just to be here today. Um, you need... 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So whether you have a Bible with you or you're going to use version or some other app on your phone or the hardback black Bible that might be in a chair around you. Um, you as a church have been in 1 Thessalonians for a few weeks now. Um, we're continuing in that today. We're going to look at chapter 4 verses 13 through 18. I think these verses are probably the most famous verses in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. They're the most well-known, this is the most well-known passage in this book, certainly, um, probably without a doubt. Um, I, it would also easily be um, the most uh, controversial passage in this book. And it's controversial simply because there are a lot of people who have a lot of different ideas about what Paul means by some of the things that he says in this passage. And sometimes those different ideas uh, get people a little bit riled up. And I'll just hope to very peacefully walk us through these truths this morning so that we can see that there's a lot that all of us can rejoice in and be encouraged by. Indeed, my prayer this morning is that we would come to this particular passage and be encouraged by what Paul says to the church in ancient Thessalonica. Now, I will add, because he's in the room right now, um, when I was here a little more than a month ago, um, I preached from chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and Michael Board, one of your elders, was right here a few minutes ago, 
He gave me all kinds of grief because he thought the passage that I was preaching was easier both to understand and to teach than the passage he was going to preach the very next week. And now I'm here, Michael, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And so all I can say to you is, get off my lawn. As human beings, um, we are wired with an insatiable desire to know and understand the future. I mean, that's just how we're programmed. We want to know what tomorrow is going to look like. I think it's largely born out of our desire to exercise as much control over tomorrow as we can, that we really want to know what the future is going to look like. I mean, we're hungry for knowledge and insight into what's next. When we have it, we feel like we're in control. When we don't have it, we feel out of control. Coincidentally, this is why meteorologists and weathermen still have a job, right? If you think about it, it's the only profession in history where you can be publicly wrong 50% of the time and keep your gig. But meteorologists do because we're the suckers who keep dialing in to figure out what they say the weather is going to be like tomorrow, even though we know they're not going to be right. So if you think about that, like a financial planner, right, if you're wrong 50% of the time, you're not financial planning for very long. If you're a teacher and you get 50% of the math problems that you put on the board as a display wrong, you're not going to be teaching very long. But you can get away with that as a weatherman. Why? Because we're so desperate to know the future that we'll put up with it, even though we know that they're wrong half the time. Even this morning, well, I do it this morning. The first thing I did when I woke up, I pulled my phone out and I pulled up the weather app to see what the weather was going to be like today. Now, I could have just gone outside to feel what the weather was going to be like today, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to know hour by hour what the prediction of the weather in Salisbury was going to be because that's, well, it just reflects this longing that we have to know what's next, to know what the future is going to look like. This is also why anytime a Bible teacher advertises that they're going to spend some time talking about the end times, people will show up in droves for that, right? Even Christians have this very innate curiosity about what is next. And I think it's largely because we want to have some control over our lives as what's next comes. And so we want to know the future. We're hungry to know the future. And it turns out that that was true of the Christians in ancient Thessalonica also. They were uncertain. They were desperate because they didn't know or didn't understand what was true about their future. In particular, they were concerned about the future of those among them who had died before the return of the Lord. They were uncertain what the return of the Lord would then mean for those among them who were dead. And that concern led even to despair. But Paul writes these words to address their concerns and to give them and us a clear picture of the hope that all of us have if we're followers of Christ. Let's read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and then I'll pray. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, 
that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Heavenly Father, I pray to you this morning grateful for the fact that you have revealed yourself through your word. You have made known your character, your purposes, your ways. And we, we don't need to guess about who you are or about what you are like or about what you are doing in history because you have made known those very things to us. It's with that in mind, Father, that we come to your word this morning and I ask that you would give us hearts that are soft and ready to hear from you. I pray that you would give us ears that are hearing and eyes that are seeing, that your Holy Spirit would work in our time now that we might know and understand better who you are and what you are doing. And I pray, Lord, that those realities would give us courage, that we would be encouraged by what we see and hear from your word this morning. We pray that in the name of Christ. Amen. So as we get started this morning, um, I want to first kind of step back from this paragraph and look at it at like the 35,000 foot level because I want you to see the movement of the passage on that high level. And we'll do that by just noting how the passage begins and how it ends. And so I want you to note that Verse 13 starts with a problem. Look at the verse again. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. And so this problem is is one of ignorance. There's something that the Thessalonians don't know or that they've forgotten. They are uninformed. But that ignorance, it doesn't remain ignorance. It's grown into despair. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep In this passage, as is often the case in the Bible, the New Testament's using the metaphor of sleep for death. So Paul is talking about those who have died. He says, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who are dead, the the Christians among you who are dead, that you may not grieve as others, and here's the key, who have no hope. And so there's a link there in the beginning of this passage from ignorance to no hope. Because the Thessalonians are ignorant, they are grieving the death of their brothers and sisters in Christ with no hope, or they're grieving out of despair. They're becoming desperate or heartbroken. This confusion, it doesn't stay like an intellectual confusion, in other words. It moves to their hearts, and so the way they live their lives is being affected by what they don't know. And so Paul addresses that. I don't want you to be uninformed. He teaches. But now fly ahead with me to the end of the passage, to verse 18, and just notice this. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so we've gone from verse 13, desperate, no hope, to verse 18, encourage one another. And I think we can agree, all of us, that that's a pretty dramatic movement in the span of just a few verses. How does it happen? How do we go from despair to encouragement? Well, the key is 
encourage one another with these words. Paul says that the teaching that he's giving here, the inspired word that comes to us as Holy Scripture, that when it is understood and applied, will move us from ignorance through despair to encouragement. And so if we are to encourage one another, we should come to the words of inspired Holy Scripture because it will move us from ignorance through despair to encouragement. And so there's a principle here that I hope your life is built on. It's a principle that I pray the life of our church will be built on. It's a principle that I pray we will see expressing itself in in virtually everything that we are and everything that we do as the people of Life Church. Here it is. We will never, ever walk in joyful, peaceful security and certainty in life apart from the knowledge of God as he's revealed in his word. Right? If your life is unstable, if you feel like your foundation is shaky, the Bible gives us a very clear solution to that. And it is the Bible. Right? If your life is uncertain, if, you're, if you feel out of control, if you feel like things are falling apart, if you feel despair, if you're walking through life and grieving or anything else from a position of no hope, then the Bible's solution to that is very clear. It's the Bible. See, we have this instinct in which our tendency is always to look at our circumstances and then to draw conclusions about who God is and what God is doing from what we see in our circumstances. But Scripture would have us do exactly the opposite. Scripture would have us look to the Word and come to an understanding of who God is and then interpret our circumstances through our understanding of who Scripture says God is. That's the path to stability, to certainty, to hope in life. And that's why the psalmist is right when he says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. I mean, do you want your soul revived this morning? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Do you want wisdom this morning? The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Do you long for joy this morning? The truth of Scripture will bring wisdom and joy into your life. And so I pray that you hunger for it. I pray that you long to gather with other believers to sit under Scripture. And I pray that in the quiet moments of your life, the Word is open before you and that you are consuming it for yourself. I pray that you, that we, hunger for the Word. And so Paul, he's writing to the Thessalonians and he's trying to move them in the face of grief and death from despair that's born out of ignorance to encouragement. And I think his teaching moves through four truths that we can see about Christian hope. And so that's how we'll kind of walk through the remaining verses here. We're going to see four distinct things about Christian hope. The first is probably the most obvious That is the fact that Christian hope does not ignore grief. It doesn't ignore grief. So we notice that Paul doesn't say, brothers, I don't want you to grieve. He doesn't say, brothers, put your grief away. 
He doesn't say, brothers, grief has no place here among you. No, he doesn't say that. He says, brothers, I don't want you to grieve like others do who have no hope. In other words, he, he says, I want your grief to be grief with hope rather than grief with despair. And that's important because I think sometimes we're tempted to an overly simplified understanding of death. And here's how that shows up. Maybe you've been at a funeral where this has been the sentiment that has been shared and celebrated. It's the funeral of a believer in Jesus. Um, That person professed faith in the gospel and walked a life of repentance and obedience. And so there seems to be, as far as we can tell, great evidence that this person was a believer and that their death is gain, as Paul says in Philippians 1. And so the person is presiding over the celebration of life or the funeral service, whatever you want to call it, will say something like, we need not be sad today because so-and-so, our dear brother or sister, is now with the Lord. And I want to say that I appreciate like, the sentiment on a certain level because there is rejoicing that should happen when someone finishes their race faithfully, when someone endures to the end in faith in the Lord. And that is something that we should praise God for and celebrate. But at the end of the day, that whole, we shouldn't be sad because this is a believer who's died, that's really only a, a half-truth. And it's not in any way consistent with how we see grief presented in Scripture. It's certainly not consistent even with how we see Jesus grieving. I mean, think about Jesus and grief for a minute. In John chapter 11, when Lazarus, Jesus' dear friend, dies. John 11 opens. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. And so we know from the very beginning that, that Jesus has a very deep love for Lazarus, so much so that he's simply identified that way, the one whom you love Lazarus dies before Jesus can get there to deal with it. When Jesus does finally arrive, Mary and Martha, whom Jesus also loves, they're they're weeping and they're mourning because their brother is dead. He goes to the grave of Lazarus, and even though like 30 seconds later he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus stands before the tomb of Lazarus and he weeps. He grieves. And so obviously grief isn't inappropriate for a Christian. Really what we should say is that Christians above all people, should have a right understanding of grief. And that's what Jesus is really displaying. I mean, why is he crying before the tomb of his friend moments before he's going to call and Lazarus is going to come out of the grave? Yes, he's crying. Yes, he's grieving because of the heartache that Lazarus and his family have endured. But even more than that, Jesus is grieving over death because Jesus knows that death was not God's plan. Jesus knows that death was never a part of God's design for this world. Jesus knows that death is simply the result of sin, that it's God's just punishment of sin. And so Jesus grieves over death because Jesus knows this is because of sin. This is because of evil. And it's, it's right to be broken over the brokenness of the world. And so brothers and sisters, that's, that's an opportunity that we have too when we grieve. We grieve over the brokenness that we see in the world, and not only the beloved lost one who is gone. We grieve with hope, not in despair, because we know the one who's conquered death. We know the one who will come back and one day restore all things and make all things new. We know the one who will fix everything, who will right every wrong, who will wipe every tear from every eye, who will replace mourning and sadness with joy and celebration for eternity. So we can grieve with hope. But Christians, we can still grieve, and really we should, 
because it expresses a right understanding of the reality of sin in the world. And it's at this point that I'll pause just for a minute and speak to you directly if you're with us today and you're not a believer in Jesus. Like if you are with us and you're, you're not a Christian, um, I'll start by saying I'm glad you're here. I know the people of Life Church are glad you're here for whatever reason you're here. Maybe you came because you're just curious about Christianity or you're curious about Life Church. Maybe you came because you heard that Life Church had a new pastor and that he's very ruggedly handsome and you just wanted to see that for yourself. Maybe you came because your friend said, hey, we're going to go to brunch, and they pulled up, and you got in the car, and they threw a Pop-Tart at you and just drove you here, right? I don't know why you might be here, but if you're with us and you're not a believer, I just hope this morning, all joking aside, that you will at least be intellectually honest with yourself about the fact that you have no real answer for death, that when, when death comes for you or for your loved ones, you will grieve without hope. And you might say to me, but I'm going to be dead, so why does it matter? And I say it matters a lot because if you're walking through life with no hope of anything beyond this life, then you're forced to put expectations on this life that this life cannot handle, right? You will not be prepared for trial or adversity. Like if your outlook on life is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, you're going to get all sorts of angry anytime somebody stands in the way of you eating and drinking and being merry. You're going to be all sorts of angry anytime something happens in your life that you can't answer for and that you can't be eating through or drinking through or being merry through, right? Anytime trial or adversity come, you're going to be broken by that because your expectation is that this life is going to give you everything you need. And I want to tell you that this life can't possibly give you everything that you need. Christians understand, amen, Christians understand that This world is not all that we long for. And so we are prepared when trial and adversity come because we say, yes, this is a broken, fallen world. But you know what? There's nothing wrong with me that a resurrection won't fix. And there's nothing wrong with the world that the new heavens and the new earth won't fix. So I'm okay with trial and adversity because I have hope. But you don't have that if you don't know the Lord. And so I pray that you would. I pray that you would consider what's offered to you in the gospel. I pray that you would consider Jesus who gave his life for you so that you could grieve with hope, so that you could have hope hope of what comes tomorrow. Here's the second thing about Christian hope. Christian hope is grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus but it's grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus. In other words, if this was a house, Christian hope is built on a foundation of what Christ has already done in his death and his resurrection. And we see that, I think, really clearly in verse 14. If you look at it with me, Paul says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so since is the key word. It tells me that he's, he's building an argument on we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Since we believe that, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. I'll say more about that in a few minutes. But I want us to think for a minute about how the death and resurrection of Jesus work in our lives so as to give us hope for tomorrow. Because in my experience, Christians, we, we are pretty good at understanding how the death and resurrection of Jesus impact us yesterday. And we have 
some sense of how the death and resurrection of Jesus impact our future, and, and then a lot less experience of how the death and resurrection of Jesus impact us like right now, today, as we walk around on the face of the earth. And so I think it's worth thinking about how these are the things that, that fuel Christian hope, where it's the, the foundation that the house, the structure of Christian hope really is built on. And, and they are that foundation because of the New Testament doctrine of union with Christ. Now, perhaps that's not a term that you've heard before. If it sounds to you like a, a fancy theological term, it, I guess it kind of is a fancy theological term, but I'll also tell you that it's a source of just immense joy for us as we understand it. The doctrine of union with Christ, which you see all over the New Testament, anytime the New Testament tells you that you are in Christ or with Christ or that Christ is in you or that you are hidden with Christ in God, that's the language of Colossians 3, that's all the language of union with Christ. So anyway, the doctrine of union with Christ tells us that somehow, mysteriously, what is true of Christ in his past, present, and future also becomes true of us as Christians in our past, present, and future. And so just like, let's walk through that for a minute and see how that builds our hope as believers. Think about Christ's past with me. What's true of Christ's past becomes true of your past when you trust in Jesus by faith. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, he disrobed himself of power and glory and came to earth in human form and he lived a perfect life. That means everything that Jesus did was perfect. He didn't just do perfect things. He thought perfect things and felt perfect things. And the record of his life was completely spotless. It was without blemish. He lived a perfect life. And because of that perfect life, the Lord, the Father, bestows upon him honor and praise and approval and affection. But because of union with Christ... God the Father looks back at what Jesus did and he thinks of us. If we're in Christ, if we're united with Christ, then God the Father thinks of us and he thinks of all of the approval and favor and reward and affection that Jesus deserves. And we actually walk through life today with that reward and favor already credited to us. After Jesus lived that perfect life, he went to the cross and he died on the cross to pay the just penalty for sin. And God the Father looked on Jesus as he died on the cross. And because of union with Christ, he thought of us. And he credited to us, if we are in Christ, the perfect, just penalty of sin that has been paid by Jesus. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the grave. And we might think, that's great, Jesus didn't have to stay dead. But, but Christians, that means that you don't have to stay dead either because God the Father looked on Jesus rising from the grave in power and he thought of us so that scripture says we will one day be raised with Christ because Christ has already been raised. What's true of Christ's past, it's true also of our past. And that's true for the present also. What's true of Christ's present is true for our present. Ephesians tells us that Jesus is at this very moment seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He has intimate and infinite access to the God of the universe, to God the Father, right? He has experiencing the unlimited, unmitigated presence of God. He's with God in that way. But Ephesians 2 tells us, because of union with Christ, that right now, as this, at this moment, some way, spiritually, we too have been raised with Christ. 
which means that we enjoy right now that same unlimited, infinite, unmitigated favor and access to the Father, right? We're with the Father, just as Jesus is with the Father, because Jesus was raised, God the Father looked at him and thought of us. And so that's why we can pray with confidence, with boldness. We can approach the throne of grace with assurance that we will not be turned aside, that when we pray to God the Father, he will not say, you again? No, he will say, ask me again and again and again because we are enjoying the same access to God that Jesus has deserved and earned. Or even think about the future for Jesus. Scripture tells us that there will be a day when the Son of God returns in power and glory to consummate his kingdom, he will on that day bring a new heavens and a new earth. He will on that day wipe every tear from every eye. He will on that day make everything sad come untrue. He will rewrite the story of history so that there is no sin and no effects of sin, no mourning or death or pain. He will return. He will do this in his future. And on that day, God the Father will look at him and he will think of us. Which is why Colossians can say, Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, brothers and sisters, Christ's past, it's credited to you as your past. Christ's present, you enjoy that as your present in Christ's future. It is your sure and certain future if you are in Christ. Which is why the death and resurrection of Jesus. They are the foundation of our Christian hope because through union with Christ, we enjoy all of the rich benefits of those things as if we had died and we had risen from the grave. Much of the time, when we speak of hope, what we really mean is is more like wishful thinking. Right, we'll say something like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, which just means I wish that it wouldn't rain tomorrow. We say, I hope Duke trounces Carolina in the ACC this year. See how I'm trying to like, pick up the lingo early on, right? Yeah, I'm, just, I'm working on it. You'll have to give me some time. But really, that's, that's wishful thinking, right? That's far from certain. You might be sitting there thinking, I hope Sharp will stop talking sometime soon so we can go to lunch. And I'm just here to say, that's wishful thinking, right? <laughs> it's far from certain. That's what we normally think of when we, when we talk about hope. We're usually just speaking of the things that we wish would be true. But the Bible, when it speaks of hope, it doesn't speak of things that we wish will be true. It speaks of things that are sure, that are certain, that are built on the foundation of the death and resurrection of Jesus. They're not things that still need to be accomplished. They are things that are guaranteed. That's why Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Not just the hope of things hoped for, the assurance of things hoped for because these things are certain through who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Let that be encouraging to us today. Let our hearts be encouraged by the certainty of the hope that we have through Jesus. Third thing about Christian hope. It's focused on Christ's presence. It's focused on Christ's presence. For a moment, we're going to skip verse 15. I'll come back to it. Look with me now at verses 16 and 17. And this is where we are just honest and acknowledge that we're, we're getting into the territory that has divided churches, divided Christians, that is 
contested in, in many circles. What I hope to do today is simply to point you to what I think we can all agree is true in light of what this passage says. Christian hope is focused on Christ's presence. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And so just pause right there. Paul's describing something that is going to happen. He's describing an event that's going to come in the future. The Thessalonians, they're worried that their brothers and sisters who are dead are going to miss out on something that's going to come. And so Paul says, well, let me tell you about what's going to come. Let me describe that day to you. And note the first feature of that day. It's accompanied by certain signs that indicate to you that day has come. What are those signs? Well, there's a cry of command. There's the voice of an archangel. And there's the sound of the trumpet of God. And what I really want you to see in those things, we, we could unpack each of those ideas. We could look at all of the other biblical allusions that might shape our understanding of those ideas. We don't need to do that today. What we just need to do is we need to recognize this is going to be a fairly public spectacle. Right? When the archangel cries out, people hear it. When the trumpet of God sounds forth, people hear it. This will be public. There are many moments when I talk to my young children at home and I feel like I'm saying things that they aren't hearing me at all. This day will not be like that. Those who are alive to witness it and those who are dead will witness it the same. It will be public. It will be heard. It will be noticed. It will be seen. Notice the second thing. Look at how Paul describes the appearance of the Lord on this day. That's in verse 17. He says, We who are alive, we who are left, along with those who are asleep, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so what I want you to understand is that that's that's not really a destination, the Lord in the clouds in the air, as much as it is a description of the appearance of Jesus. And why does that matter? Well, it matters because every time the Lord appears in glory in Scripture, he is shrouded by clouds. I mean, think about Israel gathered at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, and the Lord speaks to his people and speaks to Moses from the cloud because the intensification of his glory appears before them in a cloud. Think about Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when he appears in unveiled glory before Peter and James and John. He appears in that way surrounded by a mist or a cloud. The prophets agree that when the Lord appears in glory, he will appear in a cloud. And so that's why there's a cloud here because what this day is describing, this event is describing is the appearance of Jesus in his glory. And so it's going to be very public, you're going to hear about it, you're going to know what's happening, and then when you look and see it, you're going to know exactly what's happening because Jesus will appear in his glory, shrouded in the cloud of his glory. But notice the third thing, reunion is clearly the point of this appearance of Jesus. He says, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. We, Christians who have already died and Christians who are alive the moment that this happens, we will always be with the Lord. What's promised here is the perpetual reunion between Christ and his people. Now I'm telling you these things and maybe you're sitting here like not really sure what could be controversial about any of that and I'll just tell you there's tons that could be controversial about everything that I've just said. 
Here's why. And I'm aware of the fact that as I say these things, that it's likely that I'll step on somebody's toes. And I've just been praying all week that I would step on your toes gently today. A few of us, maybe a lot of us, have let our understanding of the last days be shaped more by speculation and more by the Christian movies and books and other things that sensationalize the last days than our understanding of the last days has actually been formed by Scripture. I mean, you probably have seen some of those things, right? Like the the movies that tell the story of the rapture when there's a car driving down the street and suddenly there's no driver in the car. There's a mother, mother running through the street screaming because she can't find her children because her children have been raptured. The driver of the car has been raptured. And those people, in the blink of an eye, they're gone and everybody else is left kind of wondering what to do. Nicolas Cage is there, right? <laughs> I appreciate you laughing. Like, I made that joke in the first hour and like three people got it. Um, and I was kind of angry about that because I, th- I thought it was clever. <laughs> I shouldn't joke. Um, yeah, those, those movies, those books, they're very popular. They feature what I'll just call, for the sake of our discussion, a secret rapture. A rapture in which the saints are caught up and no one knows where they went and no one knows why. And then there are people left on the ground trying to figure out how to make life work and what following the Lord might look like now that we should really take him seriously. Um, now, that view... The only place it can possibly come from in Scripture is right here in verse 17. The word rapture itself never occurs in our English translation of Scripture. The closest we get is right here in verse 17 when the ESV says, we will be caught up together in the air. That's the Greek verb there is harpazo. In the ancient Latin translation of the Greek New Testament, the same root that's used there is the root of our word rapture. If you didn't follow me through that, don't worry about it. My point is that this is as close as we come in Scripture to a description of the rapture. And the only thing that I'd want you to see this morning as we look at the text, I mean, there's nothing secret about this day, is there? There's no mystery about this day, is there? This is describing the glorious appearance of the Lord and the eternal reunion of the Lord's people with him, the bride of Christ being presented to the bridegroom as the bridegroom appears in glory to consummate his kingdom and to make all things right in the world. When the bridegroom comes to be with his people. I mean, we will always be with the Lord, Paul says. That's what glory is all about. That's what the return of Jesus is all about. Don't care about the trumpets or the angels or the seals or the signs. Care about that. We will always be with the Lord. It's the dawning of Revelation 21 when God is so present among his people and his glory shines so brightly among his people that we don't need the sun anymore because Jesus himself is so gloriously bright. That's what this is about. We will always be with the Lord. And I just want you to know, whether you realize it or not, that is what you are longing for in life. That is the hope, the only hope, that can fill the aches and the desires and the longings of your heart. On my phone, I have this app. Um, You might have something a lot like it. You might have the very same one that I have. 
Um, it's an app that somehow, I don't understand it, my 13-year-old set it up for me, but somehow it communicates with all of my social media feeds and all of the photos on the camera roll on my phone and all of the photos on the camera roll on my wife's phone and all of the photos that we have like living in the cloud, wherever that is. And basically what it does is it pulls all of those photos together so on every day of the calendar year, it shows me all of the photos that I've taken on that day since I started using a smartphone way back when. And so I like it because like, I'll pull up my phone today and it'll show me, today's November 10th, it'll show me every photo that I've ever taken on November 10th in the last 10 or 12 years. And, and the reason that's significant to me is because it, it means I get to see my kids at other ages than they are today. And our kids today, they're, they're awesome. We have a 13-year-old, an 11-year-old, an 8-year-old, a 6-year-old. We love them and we love the season of life that we're in with them. It's a really wonderful thing as a parent when you tell everybody to go brush their teeth and they can actually do it. It's a really one, even more wonderful when you tell them to go make their own sandwich and they can do it, right? That's, that's glorious and, and we enjoy that for sure. But when I pull this app out and I look at the old photos of my kids, when my 13-year-old wasn't 13 but 13 months old, like there is this longing in my heart to just be able to like bottle that up a little bit. Right, when I see the photos of when they were months old instead of years old, when they were tiny, when I see just like how, how sweet and tender those years were, I mean, I just often have that experience where I wish I could like somehow put that in a bottle, right? I wish that I could just capture that in some way, or if not that, just for a few minutes, go back to those years so that I could really enjoy them as I wish now that I had enjoyed them then. Maybe you've experienced the same thing. Psalm 16:11 says, "Lord, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore." Fullness of joy, friends. Pleasures forevermore. Friends, I think what that means is that the sweetest memories that we might possibly have in life, our most precious moments, our deepest delights, the things that seem to us to be most tender, even if we could take all of them together and bottle them up, that would still be just a shadow of what the joy we will experience in the presence of the Lord. That will still be just a faint echo of the infinite eternal pleasure we will have when Christ returns and we are forever with the Lord. Friends, I'll be honest. Like There are moments when I struggle to believe that there will ever be a joy like that. There are moments when I struggle to believe that there will ever be a joy that's so complete, that there will ever be a joy that can just completely um, surpass the joy that I remember from when my kids were really young. Like, I just can't believe that there's going to be a joy that's greater than the joy that I've had in being married to my wife for 19 years. There's going to be a joy that's even greater than the joy that I've had in pastoring people as the Lord has allowed me to do that. Like, I can't believe sometimes that there are joys that are greater than those joys. But then I look at the word, and I remember Christian hope, and its focal point being the presence of the Lord, 
And I, I can stand firm on the fact that there will be a day when we are with Jesus forever. And it's in his presence and not anywhere else that there's fullness of joy. It's in his presence and not anywhere else that there are infinite pleasures forevermore. And I just long for that day. Here's the fourth thing that we need to see as we just think about the picture of hope that Paul gives us here. I'll go quickly. Christian hope that transcends life and death. We skipped over verse 15 earlier. You can look back at it now with me, if you will. It says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And in short, like Paul is just really going out of his way to make us understand that if you're dead or alive when the Lord returns, it doesn't matter. That none will precede the other that none will be first over the other, that together we will enjoy that for eternity. And so his point simply is that death can't get in the way of Christian hope, which means that Christian hope is the only hope that lasts you beyond the grave. And I hope you've recognized that this morning because there are a lot of things that we can hope in. You can hope in your relationships And for a time, the relationships that you have, they may give you the kind of joy and fulfillment and peace that you're really longing for. But the simple truth is that those relationships are not going to last you beyond the grave. In fact, there's a pretty good likelihood that some of them will fail you before the grave. And at the very least, when you breathe your last breath, those hopes will be dead. Maybe you put your hope in the comfort and security you can accumulate for yourself through your possessions. And I just want to tell you that that hope, it's not going to last you beyond the grave, right? Long before you're dead, you're going to have to get rid of some of those possessions. As you die, your family members are going to sell or throw away the rest of your possessions. And the moment you die, you will take nothing with you into eternity. We can hope in so many things, in success, in social status, in influence, in power, We can hope in so many things, friends. But none of those hopes will last us beyond the grave. The Christian hope will. The substance of what we hope for, the assurance of those things, will last with us even into eternity. Christ will come. He will redeem his creation. He will bring his people into his kingdom. He will wipe every tear from every eye for eternity. This morning, let's pray and then sing together about what we will witness when we see and the joy we will experience when we see the glory of Jesus in the cloud of heaven. Jesus, we we praise you for the work that you have already done, the work of your perfect life, for the work of your crucifixion, your resurrection. We praise you for the mighty power and glory that you have demonstrated in these things. And we pray, Jesus, that you would allow those certainties to be the foundation upon which all of our hope and assurance in life is built. And then we pray that through that you would cultivate in us a longing for the 
for, for the hope that you've established, a longing for your presence and for the joy that we will experience only in your presence. Jesus, may we recognize that everything we think we want in this world is really just an echo or a shadow of our desire for you. And may we long for the day when we will be in your presence. May we live for you until that day. Help us to see and savor you in your glory now. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Church, I just want to bring you back to the fact that Paul wrote those words, the Holy Spirit inspired those words that we might be encouraged today. And so in that same vein, I just read you the words of Jesus in John 14. Jesus spoke of these same realities and he said to his disciples and to us, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. Go knowing that you will one day be with the Lord who comes for you forever. And that you will experience joy in his right hand and infinite pleasure with him forevermore, church. Go in grace and peace today.